0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. If you have a project or publication that you would like to discuss on the podcast, I will be delighted to hear from you. You can email me on press at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 31st of July, 2017, and this is episode number 25. It's holiday time here in Belfast, and we will be taking a seasonal break for the next three weeks. Until we resume our normal round of podcast interviews, I want to share with you some of the talks given to the Antrim and Down branch of the WFA over the last few months. That's the branch I co-chair in Belfast. In this episode, Nicholas Perry gives a talk on Major General Oliver Nugent, the Ulster Division and their army commanders in 1916. This talk was delivered to our SOM conference in October last year. I hope you enjoy it. Great. Um, Tom, thank you very much. Uh,
1: Good afternoon, everybody. Um, We've just had four absolutely brilliant talks, uh, and I, I was going to say, and now that's all going to change. But I mean in terms of focus as much as anything else. uh, We've had Tim's overview of this kind of strategic context. Um, We've had William talking about the recruiting situation in Ireland. Uh, We've had Heather talking about the training infrastructure uh, on the island. We've had Richard just describing brilliantly the particular Belfast context. And I now want to focus a little little bit more narrowly um, on the the Western Front itself uh, and on some individuals. Um, because a hundred years ago this week, uh, the Ulster Division was busy conducting trench raids against the German lines uh, at Messines, just south of Ypres. The raids suited the uh, aggressive approach of the divisional commander, Major General Oliver Nugent, down to a T. But this time, the initiative came not from him, but from his commander in Second Army, Herbert Plumer, who was determined to stop the Germans transferring troops south to the Somme. Plumer was, by a distance, the army commander Nugent would come to admire most of all those he served with uh, during the war, but in fact he was, the f- um, he was the fourth of the army commanders the Ulster Division had in 1916, as shown on this slide, I hope. Mm. Oh, right, not shown on the slide. Oh, there we go. From January to March, the division was in Edmund Allenby's Third Army, south of Arras, learning the ropes of frontline service. From March to July, it was in Henry Rawlinson's 4th Army, and of course it was under Rawlinson that it made its famous attack on the Schwaben Redoubt on the 1st of July. Then, from from the evening of the 1st of July, when the fighting was still going on at Thiepville, it (coughs) came under command of Hubert Goff's Reserve Army, later renamed 5th Army, which had been brought in to take over the northern part of the battlefield. And from mid-July 1916 right through to mid-July 1917, uh, as we've heard, um, uh, it was in Plumer's second army. So although the Ulster Division fought only one major battle in 1916, it served under four contrasting army commanders, with each of whom Nugent's relationship was different. And I'd like to use that as an opportunity to look not just at 1916, uh, but uh, also at 1915 and 1917, to examine three distinct but connected issues. The first is the question of command culture in the BEF. And here I want to look at the very different experiences Nugent had uh, in Second Army. First in the summer of 1915, and then in 1916-17. <coughs> one experience extremely positive, the other almost entirely negative, And consider why this was the case. And the senior officers I'll pick up there are obviously Plumer, but also Allenby. The second issue is the command hierarchy of the BEF and the developing relationship between different levels of command. And here I'd to, like to look at the planning process and the associated command tensions with Rawlinson on the Somme and, and Plumer at Messines. And thirdly and finally, I'd like to look briefly at command and the learning curve, something Tim uh, referenced earlier, the idea that the British Army on the Western Front was a learning organisation. And the main focus here will be on the division's experiences under Plumer and Gough in 1917, and specifically on whether it was possible for divisions to go backwards as well as forwards in terms of operational development. So let me begin with command culture, by which I mean the command style of senior officers and their approach to incurring casualties. For Nugent and for many others, the the outstanding example on the Western Front of a positive, sympathetic command culture was that of Plumer and the Second Army, Plumer shown here rather misleadingly as a distinctly unmilitary figure. In 1917, Nugent wrote that Second Army is the army I shall always swear by. They know how to get things done, and what's far more important, they know and understand the British infantrymen. At any rate, so H. Plumer does. And after the war, Newton described Plumer's handling of the Battle of Messines as the perfect example of trained effort in which nothing essential to success has been overlooked. However, less than two years earlier, in the summer of 1915, Nugent's opinion of leadership in Second Army was very different. He wrote bitterly after one disastrous attack, I shall never forget or forgive the order that sent my brigade into a counterattack against an impossible position without artillery preparation in broad daylight. That's a far cry from an army that was a perfect example of trained effort. In considering why this should be so, I should start by saying a word about Nugent's relationship with Plumer, which evolved over time. In fact, they served together on four separate occasions uh, during the Great War. From August to December 1914, when Plumer was GOC Northern Command in England, Nugent commanded the Hull Defenses, protecting naval installations around the Humber. He reported direct to Plumer and liked him, but at this stage found him rather fussy and something of a micromanager. They did, however, together manage to inflict their first joint fatality of the war in September 1914, When, returning from lunch one day in Plumer's car, they ran over an old lady getting off a tram. In December, Plumer left uh, for France. The second and third occasions were from May to September 1915 in the Ypres Ypres salient, Plumer now commanding 2nd Army and Nugent an infantry brigade, and then again in 1916-17 when Nugent was commanding the Ulster Division, and we'll come on to those two spells in just a second. The final period was in April and May 1918, when the Ulster Division, or what was left of it after the German Spring Offensive, came under Plumer's command once more, to Nugent's great relief. And the connection finally ended when Nugent was sent to India in May 1918. So in all, they served together for over 18 months, by far Nugent's longest association with an army commander during the war. Returning then to 1915, in May, Nugent went to Flanders as a brigade commander in the 14th Division, a new army formation rushed out following heavy British losses at the Second Battle of Ypres. It was immediately pushed into the line where, over the next eight weeks, it had a grim baptism of fire, suffering over 4,000 casualties. It also gained a reputation for being an unlucky division, often a euphemism for being incompetent. In many ways, 1915 was the British Army's worst year of the war. The Germans not only held the dominating ground around Ypres, they were also much better equipped, especially in artillery. British operational doctrine was still in transition, hovering uncomfortably between seeking technological solutions to trench warfare while clinging to pre-war ideas about the ability of high morale to overcome material deficiencies. Plumer and his colleagues, as Tim was saying earlier, of course had to make war as they must, not as they wished. Yet it's really striking how uncaring the command ethos was in Second Army in the summer of 1915, and how unsympathetically the 14th Division, a new new formation struggling to find its feet, was treated by senior officers and regular formations alike. Plumer had only recently taken over command, and so was still settling into his new role. The leadership tone was therefore set as much by his senior subordinates as by him, one of whom was Sir Edmund Allenby. Allenby had been in the year ahead of Nugent at the Staff College in the 1890s and Nugent had a high opinion of him. But Allenby remains a contradictory figure. <laughs> Intelligent and well-read, he was capable of attracting intense loyalty from those who knew him well. When eventually in 1917 he was sidelined by Hague and packed off to the Middle East, he made his reputation by his dynamic leadership in the Palestine campaign. But on the Western Front, Allenby was a domineering bully And Nugent's opinion of him was was changed permanently by his experiences that summer. Within weeks, Nugent was writing to his wife back in Cavern that Allenby is intensely unpopular. He has the rudest manners and publishes silly orders which can't be carried out, and then abuses his divisional generals because they aren't carried out. They all hate him. And the person who hated Allenby more than anybody else was Aylmer Haldane, commander of the 3rd Division. In June 1915, his division was placed under, under Allenby's 5th Corps to attack Bellard Ridge, a, mi- a rise a few miles east of Ypres. Two brigades from 14th Division, including Nugent's, uh, were attached to support the attack, and this operation illustrates some of the attitudes I'm talking about. The attack took place on the 16th of June and was a costly failure, Haldane's division losing over 3,000 3, men. His troops broke into the enemy trenches, uh, but couldn't get further. And although Newton's brigade wasn't in the end committed, the other brigade of 14th Division, 42 Brigade, was ordered forward, became disorganised by shellfire, and arrived too late to take part in Haldane's second unsuccessful assault. Even though the moment had passed, Allenby still wanted to launch it into a hopeless, unsupported attack. Haldane told him it would achieve nothing but needless losses. Allenby allegedly retorted, "'What the hell does that matter? "'There are plenty more men in England.' "'Not like these, sir,' Haldane says,' he replied. Fortunately for 42 Brigade, Allenby was eventually dissuaded. But word got out both about Allenby's callous attitude and about 14th Division's uncertain start and the reputations of both suffered. The 14th Division's next serious reverse involved Nugent himself. Towards the end of July 1915, his brigade took over trenches at Hooge, east of Ypres. These had been captured a week earlier when, Hald- when Haldane's division exploded a large mine under them, hence the name of the sector, the Crater, shown at the top left there. At dawn on the 30th of July, the Germans retook the Crater in a surprise attack using flamethrowers, the first time these had been abused against the British. By now, the 14th Division uh, was no longer under Allenby, but in Sir John Keir's 6th Corps, and Keir now ordered Nugent to mount a counterattack that afternoon to retake the lost trenches. Nugent protested strongly and repeatedly that a daylight attack without proper artillery support stood no chance, but to no avail. The attack went in, and as predicted, the German machine guns mowed the attackers down. Nugent halted it as soon as he could, but not before over a thousand of his men had become casualties. He was intensely bitter, writing that. One can have no confidence in leaders who send men callously or ignorantly to certain death against the opinion of the man who might know being on the spot. Despite the heroism and losses of the counterattack, there was precious little sympathy for the 14th Division from either senior officers or other formations. Haldane was scathing about the loss of the trenches, which he said he had predicted given the quality of these new army troops. Another regular officer described the loss of the crater as a real bad show. Soldiers of the regular 6th Division jeered the survivors of the 14th as they came out of the line. A few days later, the 6th Division recaptured most of the lost trenches in a properly prepared attack, but were quickly blasted out of them again by the German artillery with over 2,000 casualties. I fancy they wouldn't jeer now, wrote Nugent bitterly. But the person strangely absent from all of this is Plumer. He may have been letting his corps commanders get on with it, But there's no sign here of the close interest and engagement that characterised him later. The Plumer of 1915 is not the Plumer of 1917. There's a a clear pattern to the Second Army's operations in this period, which reflects not just tactical and technological disadvantages, but also a cavalier attitude to soldiers' lives. That's something we never associate with Plumer. The experience of Hooge was repeated again and again. The Germans would capture a position the British would carry out hasty counter-attacks, not fast enough to take the Germans off balance, but too rushed to be effective, which were then pressed beyond the point of common sense, resulting in heavy loss. At that point, after a delay, properly prepared, and often successful, attacks would be mounted. This happened at Hooge in July and August 1915, at the Bluff in February 1916, at St. eloy in April 1916, and at Mount Sorrel in June 1916. In these four actions, which no one has ever heard of, the British and Canadians lost almost 20,000 men, and in early 1916, Haig, the new CNC, came close to sacking Plumer. The turning point for Second Army really came with the appointment of Tim Harrington from Kildare as Plumer's Chief of Staff in June 1916. Of course, there are other reasons for Second Army's improved performance. Plumer was becoming more experienced. The operational differential between the British and Germans was narrow, and the focus of the fighting had shifted south to the Somme, so giving Second Army a break. And, crucially, Allenby and Keir had gone, Allenby <clears> on <throat> promotion to Third Army, and Keir to be one of his core commanders. Ironically, in June 1916, Allenby sacked Keir, which demonstrates the limitations of comradeship. Plumer certainly wasn't uh, Harrington's puppet, as some historians have suggested, but Harrington did have a major impact Even in big wars, individuals can make a difference. His high standards of staff work, his willingness to listen to subordinates, his insistence that staff were there to serve the frontline soldier, freed Plumer to play to his own strengths as an intelligent and careful commander. They became a highly effective partnership, as we'll see in a moment. That brings me on to my second theme, command hierarchies, and how the different levels particularly army, corps and division, worked together. And here, as I say, I look at the Somme and Messines. For the 1st of July attack, the generals at the next two levels up from Nugent were Sir Thomas Moreland, commander of 10 Corps, and Sir Henry Rawlinson, commanding 4th Army. By an odd coincidence, all three were not only from the same regiment, the King's Royal Rifle Corps, but they'd all joined it within a year of each other in 1883-84. Nugent liked Moreland and thought him a good soldier. While he admired Rawlinson for his intelligence, he regarded him as slippery and over-ambitious, which fits with Rawlinson's reputation across the army, where two of his nicknames were Cad and the Fox. Planning for the Somme offensive proved a fraught process. Rawlinson's original plan, which he devised with his chief of staff, Archie Montgomery from County Tyrone, was for a two-stage, bite-and-hold operation, (coughs) Tim was referring to that earlier first capturing the forward section of the German position, then pausing for several days to reorganise before attacking the remainder, and Morland, Nugent and the rest began planning on that basis. But then came the first disconnect in the command chain, right at the top. When Haig saw Rawlinson's plan in April, he thought it lacked ambition. He wanted the opening assault to aim for a complete breakthrough (laughs) of the German lines. As at one level, that's fair enough. Commanders-in-chief are allowed to intervene if they feel they must. But the British now fell between two stools. Rawlinson changed his plan, which now aimed to capture much of the German second position as well as the first in the opening assault. Unfortunately, that that significantly increased the extent of the fourth army's attack without increasing the artillery available to support it. And this overstretching of the artillery led directly to the disaster of the 1st of July, when the unsuppressed German defense defense inflicted nearly 60,000 British casualties. Moreland, to his credit, didn't come quietly. Supported by Nugent and his other divisional commanders, William Rycroft of 32nd Division and Edward Percival from County Down of 49th Division, he tried to get Rawlinson to change his mind and to allow a two-phase operation, at least in their sector, because of the strength of the German positions around Thiepville. Rawlinson, however, refused. Tim and I sharing slides, not for the first time at one of these events. Um we sometimes see the Ulster Division's attack in isolation, but the Thiepville assault was a core level operation involving all three of Morland's divisions, the Ulster Division attacking on the left, the 32nd on the right, and the 49th in reserve. A very obscure uh, map there, I'm afraid. All in all, though, a force of some 36 infantry battalions, 256 guns, and about 58,000 men. So this was very much Morland's battle. But even so, his headquarters were still unsure what their precise role was in the planning process. Nugent and Rycroft were sent off to pr- prepare their own separate attack plans, Morland's intention being to tie those together at core level. But in mid-May, only five weeks before the opening bombardment, it became clear that the plans of the 32nd and 36th were, in- were incompatible. Rycroft was preparing a frontal ass- assault on Thiepval, while Nugent was planning an attack at the valley of the Ancre, a mile away outflank the Schwaben Redoubt from the north. In the end, Nugent told Tencor bluntly that they had to sort things out, and when they did, it was Nugent who was overruled and the Ulster Division which had to recast its plan and attack alongside the 32nd. So teething problems there were aplenty. The army group commander, Haig, imposed on the army commander, Rawlinson, a plan he didn't believe in. Rawlinson, in his turn, refused to modify that plan to take account of the particular problems facing Moreland, who was attacking a key objective. And Moreland, at the next level down, failed to provide his subordinates with sufficiently detailed guidance to enable them to produce mutually supporting plans of their own. Saying this is not to be wiser after the event, but simply to note that everyone at all levels were learning as they went along. In the end, the real misfortune of the Ten Core attack was the inability of Nugent, Percival and Rycroft, despite repeated efforts, to persuade Moreland to reinforce the Ulster Division's initial success. Had he done so, just possibly, and who knows, Thiepville might have been captured and the redoubt held. Instead, he used the 49th to try to retrieve the 32nd Division's failure at Thiepville without success. And that was a sign of the immaturity of the BEF's operational planning at this stage of the war. By 1918, commanders in his position would instinctively have tried to reinforce success rather than failure. By the time a few battalions were made available late in the day, it was too late. However, to see how quickly lessons could be learned, we only have to look at Messines a year later. Plumer had cleared his carefully planned limited operation to capture Messines Ridge with Hague well in advance. A clear framework was issued to the subordinate Corps commanders, who in turn provided clear planning guidelines to their divisions. Nugent had confidence not only in Plumer and Harrington, but also his immediate boss, Hamilton Gordon of Nine Corps, a competent, if not very charismatic, general. New tactics were introduced based on the reorganised infantry platoon, which were far more flexible than those used at the Somme. The British had massive artillery superiority and applied it intelligently. And then there were, of course, the 19 huge mines that the British exploded under the German defences on the morning of the 7th of June. Nugent, when the battle began, even felt sorry for the Germans. I even pitied the Bosch, he wrote. He had such an appalling ordeal to go through. Another match there with Tim's. Um, Yet even here, uh, there was scope for dysfunctionality uh, in the different tiers of command. Shortly before the offensive, Haig visited 2nd Army and had sessions with every senior commander from Plumer down to his divisional generals where they outlined to him their plans of attack. Nugent, whose relationship with Haig wasn't good, found the experience uncomfortable. He always makes me feel like a small boy saying his lessons, he wrote. And the analogy was more apt than Nugent realised because this was a normal exam that could be failed. In Nine Corps, along with the 16th and 36th Divisions, was the 19th Division, commanded by Alan Stuart Wortley, a friend of Nugent's from the 60th Rifles. But Haig wasn't impressed by Wortley's answers. I didn't like his arrangements, wrote Haig. He had broken up a brigade to provide two battalions as moppers up to another brigade. He was also very nervous and fussy. Wortley was replaced the following day. In fact, his plan to use moppers up was exactly the same as the ones used by both Nugent and Hickey in the 16th Division on the 7th of June. Maybe it was Watley's nervous delivery that did for him. But even allowing, again, for the fact that commanders-in-chief are allowed to make adjustments, for Haig to reach down three command levels and change key personnel a fortnight before the start of a major offensive doesn't feel like a proper delineation of responsibilities. And this brings me on, finally, to my third issue, uh, command and the learning curve. Most people would... Now Wood, I think, agree that the British Army in the Great War was an organisation that learned from its experiences. But discussion is focused, though, on whether a curve is the right image, as it implies steady, uninterrupted progress. The, the suggestion, instead, is that the trajectory is more a series of lurches upwards, or a succession of loops. As Tim was pointing out, the Germans, after all, were learning too, and each side had to react to the other's innovations. Infantry tactics in June 1917, as we've seen, were far in advance of the linear tactics employed on the Somme on the 1st of July, which in their turn were better, at least in terms of artillery and infantry weapons, than Nugent had had in 1915. And at Cambrai in November 1917, less than six months after Messines, the Ulster Division took part in an offensive employing massed armour, predicted artillery artillery fire and close air support, tactics closer to 1944 than than to 1914. And yet, in the summer of 1917, uh, we, we saw the biggest co- discontinuity of operational progress during Newton's time in command. The Messines Offensive was the division's greatest success, where almost everything went like clockwork. Yet it was followed ten weeks later, on the 16th of August, by the disaster of Langemark, near Ypres, when Nugent's assault battalions came streaming back in defeat, and where the partnership with the 16th Division... Importance symbolically then as now, as well as now, fell apart in mud, blood, and mutual recriminations. Before looking specifically at the reasons for the August setback, setback we should touch briefly on two particular <coughs> aspects of, of the Ulster Division as a learning organization. The first is the division's operational rhythm, or the pattern of its engagements on the Western Front. While many British divisions went through the furnace of the Somme two, three, or even four times, and the same at Passchendaele the Ulster division like the 16th fought in each of those two battles only once and the reason as we've been hearing this morning and this afternoon was the manpower problems they faced every time they suffered heavy casualties they faced an existential crisis and as we were hearing for several weeks in the autumn of 1916 they were teetering on the brink of amalgamation or disbandment and a similar manpower crisis followed third deep Arguably, this stop-start pattern both helped and hindered the learning process. It reduced the number of times that the division was engaged in operations, and therefore, in theory, its learning opportunities, but that, of course, was more than offset by the fewer casualties it suffered. One direct consequence of the manpower problem, however, was that after the Somme, as we've seen, both Irish divisions were left in Second Army for several months. And the fact that they were together in the same corps, in the same army, on a relatively quiet front, might, one would have thought, been a learning opportunity. In the spring of 1918, for example, the Canadian Corps had the good fortune not to be caught up in the German offensives, and they used that period of a couple of months, either out of the line or in a quiet sector, to rest, reorganise and rethink their tactics. That was a major reason why, from August 1918 onwards, they were the driving force behind the British successes during the war's final campaign. But that didn't happen for the 36th and 16th in 1916. That, this was partly because Nine Gore wasn't at this stage able to provide the necessary doctrinal leadership. But it was mainly because both divisions, despite being under strength, were continuously in the line. Far from being rested, they were being worn out. And in February 1917, Nugent complained to GHQ that starving his division of men with no opportunity for either rest or specialist training was disheartening and demoralizing and said explicitly that the division was not as good as it had been the previous July. There are a few signs of a learning curve there. Yet between March and June 1917, the division did surge along the learning curve. An influx of reinforcements, the chance of rest, intensive training in the new tactics, and the arrival of new equipment led to a major jump forward operationally, possibly its biggest of the war. It was a re-energised, highly motivated motivated division that went into action at Messines. The second factor was stability at leadership level. The turnover of officers and men at unit level in the Ulster Division, as in other formations, was continuous throughout the war, including commanding officers. Of Nugent's 12 infantry COs in June 1916, for example, none were still there 10 months later. A vital strand of continuity was therefore provided by Nugent's own headquarters and by his brigadiers. His Chief Operations Officer, Otley Place, served with him from April 1916 until he was captured in March 1918. The Principal Logistics Staff Officer, Lewis Cummin, also stayed with the division for two years. Two of the infantry brigadiers, William Withacombe and Charles Griffith, served from 1915 to the middle of 1918. Eugen's Commander Royal Artillery, Henry Brock, arrived in late 1915 and stayed till the end of the war. In terms of learning, therefore, it was Divisional HQ and the Brigade Commanders who were both a vital repository of corporate memory and drivers of operational change during the BEF's hard slog from mid 1916 <coughs> to mid-1918. But for a learning curve to work, the learning, the learning needs to happen simultaneously at different levels. And this brings us back, finally, to Third Deep and the disastrous attack at That setback came not because the Elster Division had become de-skilled since Messine, but because the commander of Fifth Army, Hubert Gough, and the commander of 19th Corps, Herbert Watts, were further down the learning <coughs> curve than Plumer and Hamilton Gray. It has become fashionable to trash Hubert Gough's re- reputation, and that's a fashion I'm happy to continue. It's true that he had energy, determination, and when he chose to use it, charm. Objectively, he had a difficult task in, in August 1917. It wasn't his fault the weather broke and turned the ground into a quagmire. The Germans had important advantages, strong defences, powerful artillery, good, vi- good visibility from the Gellewald Plateau. But Goff played into their hands in the way he conducted his attack, at both the operational and tactical levels. And he showed again the negative traits that came with his gifts, as he had done in the closing stages of the Somme and at Bullecourt in April and May 1917. His failings were his persistent failure to realise that success on the Western Front required precision as well as energy, his bullying of his subordinates and his staff's uncaring attitude and the sloppiness of their preparations. But on the 16th of August, he wasn't alone. A good corps commander, an Ivor Maxey, for example, or a Lord Cavan, under both of whom Nugent served and admired greatly, would have compensated for some of Gough's weaknesses. But Watts, who was similar to Gough, only stupider, merely magnified them. And so the scene was set for the Ulster Division's most dispiriting operation of the war. Left for a fortnight under intense artillery fire and in terrible conditions, the Division suffered 1,500 casualties just holding the trenches. The exhausted infantry were sent into the attack on the 16th of August through deep mud against uncut wire and unsuppressed machine guns and artillery. When the attack stalled, the survivors were bundled back by heavy counterattacks with loss of a further 2,000 men. And perhaps the most unattractive aspect of Gough and Watts' performance was their readiness to blame the soldiers under them. Haig saw Watts the following day, who, said Haig, gave a bad account of the two Irish divisions. And he heard the same thing from Gough, who told Haig that he was not pleased with the action of the Irish divisions. The men are Irish and apparently didn't like the enemy shelling, so Gough said. <laughs> small wonder that Nugent's loathing of Goff dates from this time. Four days later, Watts launched another two divisions over the same ground, using the same tactics, and unsurprisingly got the same results. Nugent wrote frustratedly, the Corps have learned nothing from our experiences, neither apparently has the Fifth Army. And his considered and damning view came when Goff was finally sacked in March 1918, ironically probably unfairly at that point. Nugent wrote, The 5th Army never had a success and was responsible for the loss of more lives uselessly than all the other armies put together. Please God, for the sake of the British Army and the cause for which we are fighting, Goff will never be employed out here again. Fortunately for the BEF, and indeed for the concept of the learning curve, the performance of Goff and Watts in August 1917 wasn't typical of the Army as a whole, as the Ulster Division's next battle at Cambrai uh, would demonstrate. So in conclusion, and very briefly, I come to the after the battle part uh, of my title, and how for Nugent and his division, these three aspects, command culture, command integration, and the learning curve, developed in the 18 months after the Somme. The answer is, I think, that while the gradient of progress was generally upwards, it was not consistent. Command integration got steadily better, from the Somme to Messines to Cambrai. Third Ypres was a dip but even there, planning systems were more professional than they'd been a year earlier. The learning curve definitely wasn't a smooth curve for the Ulster Division. The glorious failure at Thiepville was followed by months of relative stagnation and then came the jump forward in early 1917 before Messines. That was followed, through no fault of their own, by the misery of Third Ypres and then the recovery in time for the very modern battle of Cambrai at the end of the year. And command culture depended to a considerable degree, as it always does, on personality. Individuals do matter, as we noted earlier, even in major wars. By 1917, Plumer and Harrington had developed into an effective and much-admired partnership, a status they retained till the end of the war. Gough hadn't really developed since the start of the Somme Offensive, and his reputation sank in the mud of Flanders, along with so many of his men. Allenby's hectoring manner finally came to grief at the Battle of Arras in April 1917, when his divisional commanders, to all intents and purposes, mutinied. He was sacked and kicked off to Palestine, where, in a different context, he flourished. And Rawlinson, sidelined for much of 1917, returned to command 4th Army in the British Army's greatest ever series of victories, the Hundred Days Campaign of 1918, though he never attracted anything like the affection that Plumer did. And finally, finally, just to conclude the story, after the war, three of the four army camp commanders outlived Nugent, who died of pneumonia in May 1926 in Cavern. The photograph shows how much he'd aged. Rawlinson had died the previous year in India, where he'd been commander-in-chief. Plumer passed away in 1932 as a field marshal and a member of the House of Lords. Ten years earlier, he'd written the foreword to Cyril Valls' history of the Ulster Division, in which he paid particular tribute to Nugent. Allenby, too, became a field marshal and was raised to the peerage, dying in 1936. Gough lived till 1963 and spent much of his retirement campaigning to restore his reputation, in which he eventually partly succeeded. Nugent would not have been pleased. Thank you.